0: Hey, welcome to the Life 2.0 podcast. I am John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. <laughs> little bit different open music for the podcast. There's a reason for that. Uh, even though I'm getting a late start today, I usually crank these podcasts out every Saturday morning about five o'clock. Uh, flurry of activity this morning, that didn't happen. So I'm just now getting to it mu- almost 10 hours later. And that's not using my sweet spot. But there was a time that I did radio from 3 to 6 p.m. Anyway, today is August 20th and it is National Radio Day. So I could not let this go by without getting a podcast in. Radio has been uh, a part of my life for a quarter of a century, coming this August 27th in just seven days. It'll be my 25th anniversary in radio. I started August 27th, 1997. And I don't know what happened and where it all went and how I got where I'm at. And I'm still wondering what the hell's going on here for the most part. But I just felt like, you know, once a year when Radio Day rolls around, a little bit on the 27th, but for sure on Radio Day... Uh I just need to recognize and remember and recall some of these incredible moments I've had. Listen, anybody that knows me, uh, knew me prior to radio is probably still wondering what the hell's going on with this guy because I was never trained to do this. I didn't go to school for this. I didn't go to broadcasting school. I didn't take any journalism classes. And some incredible events transpired and conspired, I think, to put me in the air chair, as I call it, in front of a microphone for 25 years. And I've talked about this ad nauseum, so I'm not gonna go too deep into it, but really I'm the least likely guy to be doing what I do. It just, it, I wanted to uh, go to college, play football, uh, become a gym teacher and coach football in high school like some of my mentors. And that some of those pieces happened. I went to college, I played football, but I didn't go into PE so much. I, I did some substitute teaching at my old high school, and there were some changes going on with the board of ed and stuff. And I didn't go that route. I, I took the, the road less traveled, that's for sure. And the universe intervened a couple times and pushed me in a different direction. So it wasn't until nineteen ninety six when I had uh, you know I had the degree. I'd been in the service for four years and come out. I was honorably discharged veteran. Uh, I was married at the time. You know I'd done everything right. I'm a hard worker. I'm a good guy. Put your nose to the grindstone. And there were things that were falling apart that were out of my control. It was one of the first early lessons that not everything's gonna go Johnny's way. And when that starts happening, and you're someone like me who's just bordering on the low end of an A type personality, I've kind of settled down a little bit into a high B, low A. um, I think that it's hard to grasp the fact that you're not in control. There's sometimes you can't do anything about the circumstances that show up in your life. You just have to ride them out. And I'd been in a business deal with the Road Warriors. Uh, Both those guys have passed on, the wrestlers, uh, Mike Hegstrand and Joe Laurinaitis. Uh, I was in a business thing, it didn't work out. It went south, I lost a lot of money. We lost our home basically in Chicago. And at the very same time, I had given a commencement address at a small hotel, motel slash in uh, Upper Michigan, in the bustling metropolis of Rapid River. and. The people who owned the motel at the time, Bruce and Pat Hardwick, we'd become close with them. And Bruce knew what was going on with all the stuff in Chicago. And no matter where I turned and what I did, every freaking door closed. So he called me one day and he said, why don't you come move up here? And I said, what the hell would I possibly do in Rapid River, Michigan? I'm a Chicago guy, blah, blah, blah. Love the outdoors, but I don't see that happening. And it did happen. Uh, a lot of, like I said, the, the, it's almost like the, the highways and byways conspired to push me in that direction. We ended up living in that motel for a year and during that time, which was a very difficult time in my life, I had this recurring dream of walking. I would see myself on the side of the road with a backpack on and the setting sun set on my left and a big beard and a stick in my hand. And it was, this was every day, if not every other day that I would have this dream before I woke up. I didn't know what it meant, driving me crazy. We moved to the motel. I'm condensing a lot here folks for a time and um, Probably two weeks after we moved up there, I I had that dream again. I talked with Bruce, who's an Ojibwa elder, very wise man. And he said, listen, you're being given a choice. You know, they're knocking on your subconscious. What do you want to do with your life? This is not by happenstance. All this is happening. It brought you here. And I knew when he said that, that I needed to walk from where we just moved to, Rapid River, back to where I just left, Chicago, and then back again. And I've written about that in every book, my first book, Living an Uncommon Life. I wrote about it in Every Moment Matters and I've written extensively about it in my third book, Phenomenon. So I'm not gonna go into all those pieces there, but the one piece that needs to be repeated and is the leverage point and the pivot pin for my entire 25 year career was walking back outside of Walk, Wisconsin, by myself, uh, my, my friends Dwayne Kennard and Joe Johnson had walked down with me, they went home, I'm walking back, And, uh, right outside of Walk, I literally find myself standing in this, in the scene that I had dreamt for months. And I thought, how the F does that happen to a guy like me? What is, I'm losing my marbles here. And there was this voice in my head, clear as bell. It said, John, go on the radio. And folks, it's been 25 years and I've never heard a voice tell me to go off the air. I've had people who send me notes and letters that don't think I should be on the radio, but all in all. That is the reason I do what I do to this day, and it's been this roller coaster ride. Like a lot of people in radio, I've had some great highs and great lows. There were times I made more money than I could possibly think I could earn doing this, and there's other times I had nothing. In the beginning, I started with zero. Uh, I, I, you know, I was not trained for this, as I mentioned, and I talked my way into five shows, and I got five more shows, and for a whole year I did it twice a week. I think at the end of the year it was twice a week for an hour each, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And eventually I started making more money. It just just took a life onto its own because i kept showing up. And that is one of the big lessons, I think, not just in my travels in radio, but in life in general, you just keep showing up. You may not know all that's going on. You may not be able to control all the factors and the circumstances, but just keep showing up and see what happens and put your best stuff forward. Many years ago when I was on WGN, which was, I got to tell you, I don't know if it was the pinnacle of my radio career, but it might be uh, to, to broadcast on WGN in Chicago, where I grew up listening to these guys, Wally Phillips and Roy Leonard and all the rest, uh, uncle Bobby Collins, um, to be, I was there for a couple of years, uh, in rotation. And it was one of those things where, you know, it's looking like I might be a permanent fixture there and that didn't happen. But the two years I was there was fantastic and met some great people and did some good work, but the broadcast from the fish bowl, which was right on Michigan Avenue was just a thrill. And I remember clearly walking out of the fishbowl, whatever morning it was doing that. Uh, It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. I think I was on from like six to nine or whatever it was. And just wishing my folks could have heard it. They would not freaking believe any of this. They wouldn't believe any of it. I think they'd love the shit out of it, but they wouldn't believe any of it. So when I think about all these places I've been, you know, I went from my own radio show with no experience in building it out to uh, Oprah radio in 2004, all the way to 2010. And then from there to WGN and WLS, I did some things in CBS and all over the radio map. And I've never known where the next step is. It'd be nice though, I will tell you, but I, because of this keep showing up thing and, and being around as long as I have, stuff finds me, projects find me, opportunities find me. And that's part of the magic of all this. You know, it's, it, there's that old, uh, billboard, it shows success as a straight line, but the truth is it's like squiggling all over the place. Most people's lives are like that. And that's what the ride of success is all about. So here it is radio day, and I thought what I would do is uh, play a few clips from some of the people who came to mind just in kind of spur of the moment. These are not always my favorites, but I had access to them, which makes it a whole lot easier. And I thought I'd just put a little montage together of my time in the radio over the years. And I got, my thing is my voice has changed so much since I started. I didn't go all the way back to 97, but you're going to hear a couple of clips here uh, with Christopher Reeve in just a second, which was, I don't know, 18, 20 years ago at this point, uh, Carol Channing, my voice, and it's not, not real good quality with that. We had some problems, but she was a delight. Um, and then the late, great sports writer, Dick Shapp and my buddy, Jerry Kramer calling in to, uh, to tell Dick Schaap, you know, he was gonna, he called it like he was an anonymous caller, but they figured out it was pretty quick. A lot of fun with that. Uh, and then my dear friend, the late great Earl Hammer, the guy who created the Waltons, I just, I adored the man, I adored his writing. I thought he was a great presence in the world. We were great friends. Uh, I still have some of his autograph books. He sent me a letter once, it just means the world to me about writing and the importance of that. So when I work on books, I, I kind of recall him. And my great friend, Gene Chatsky, uh I had the opportunity to work with Jean at Oprah Radio, and it was the first show to win a coveted Gracie Award. I was the producer along with Catherine Murphy, and Jeannie was the first show to go live. Uh, she was the NBC money maven for decades, and still one of my favorite humans on the planet. And the clip ends up with a, a gentleman we lost just this past year, Cap- Jerry Coffee. Uh, you'll hear a little bit of that at the end where I explain that I've been asked hundreds of times, who's your favorite guest? And when you talk to thousands of people over 25 years, it's really hard, I think, to put them into categories, but when it comes really down to it, uh, the one that's most memorable to me is Captain Coffee. Like I said, he passed away last November, and I went out to Arlington for his uh, funeral and service, and it was, boy, it was an honor. It was quite an honor, uh, amazing human being, and it was a, one of the longest held prisoners of war in Vietnam. So listen, for me to be in this chair, and to have these conversations with these people, I feel so blessed and so fortunate. I've been first chair learning and, and hosting at the same time. And I've always tried not just to ask the questions that you'd ask if you were in my position, but the questions maybe that you haven't thought of yet. So it's just been something. Even this podcasting thing, I never thought this would ever come around. Why would I? I thought I'd be on the radio and sit in the studio all the time. Now I have my own studio at home, but I was a studio rat for years. I had to literally go to the studio to do things. And that's changed a lot over the years. And you know, I got to give a special shout out uh, to Dan Mason. Dan was the uh, CEO of CBS radio for 20 years. And in in 2009 or 2009, depending on how you want to say it, because a little bit later, I'm going to tell you about a guy who used to send me hate mail because he didn't like the way I said 2013. Anyway, it takes all kinds, but, Dan was taking his wife Kathy's truck in to get the oil changed on a Saturday morning. And at the time, in addition to being a producer for Gene Chatsky and Dr. Oz and Bob Green and a few other people, I had my own show on the Oprah channel. You know, three, four million people listening. It was was a great ride. And Dan heard me in the car because his wife was an aficionado and and enjoyed Oprah's uh, radio. So it just was on. And so apparently in his version, I was talking about baseball. I don't know... What show that would have been, but I'm glad he thinks so. And he tucked my name into his kind of hip pocket, and oh, 9, 13, maybe 2014, 2013, 2014, uh, he reaches out to me on Facebook. and I'm like, who is this guy?" And I kind of check him, like, oh, it's Dan Mate, C CEO of CBS Radio. So it was a very interesting conversation and connection, and he wanted me to be part of this podcasting revolution and platform at the time called Played which is a CBS product. And I was all in, but I said, I gotta go to the studio to do it. So once a week, I'd go down to WBBM here in Chicago. I'd do the show. It was great. And I have continued on with that in many different iterations. And he has been a a staunch advocate for the work that I do. Uh, A year and a half or so ago, almost two years now, unfortunately, it's been that long. He uh, brought me on to co-host a revolutionary cultural exchange show called The Bridge where I would be in contact with people in Beijing, China, two co-hosts in Beijing, China, eventually turn into three, seven days a week for a year. I didn't know anybody in China before that, and I sure learned a lot about their culture, and it conversely, they learned a lot about... They were pretty sure I was John Wayne, you know, when it started. Who is this guy? He sounds like he's a... Gr- well, there's some parts of me that's like John o. Wayne, but not all of me. And we became good friends, and we stay in touch to this day. The show went a year. The contract expired. Uh, we did not shake the headlines, but we sure built a lot of lifelines. I was very, very proud of that project. So I appreciate Dan's uh, work to this day. He he and I uh, stay connected on things. And finally, before I drop the big clip, I got to say that a uh, special shout out as well to my friend, Bill Curtis. Uh, BK and I go way back, uh, probably 1989. There's a whole story behind that. I'm not going to get involved in that right now. Uh, but he has been someone who has also been right in the dugout with me and wherever he could promote things and do things and work on things. He's always done that. And the, I think the most impactful thing that I've done on radio, the shows have been great, but I got pretty adept at one minute programming, which we call short form. And so to take a a fair amount of information and put it into a minute, it takes a little doing, not something you learn in eighth grade. And, uh, I learned, what happened was, is that when I was at Oprah Radio, I was doing one minute vignettes, as we call them, short form, as I said, and I did Money Matters with Gene Tatsky. We worked on uh, the Health Minute with Dr. Oz, Medical Minute, and I wanted to do something environmentally because there's a lot of stuff that we wanted to get across, and so I created this thing called Earth Matters, and I had written, oh, four or five scripts, and Bill was coming over to do either my show, Oz's show, Gene's show, I don't recall, in 09, 08, 09, somewhere in there. And he came in and I said, here, read these. And so he jumped in and he has that great voice, hello, I'm Bill Curtis, and he hammered these things out. We did the show and I forgot about them. They sat for three years in the radio audio vault for Harpo. And one day my esteemed colleague, Johnny Keith, my bro, he's the engineer over there, he calls me and I'm gone from Harpo already. He says, hey, what do you want me to do with these earth minutes? I said, what are you talking about? And he tells me there's five of these things in there and he puts some production around them because they sound pretty good. They did sound pretty good. And Bill and I collaborated for the next three years and we created 300 of these. And so they aired national syndication locally in Chicago and of course, across the country. And it was our attempt to take a lot of information on the environment that most people never hear, put it in short form because most people's attention spans are about a minute and a half at the most, and put his voice on it and my production and my scripting and it worked out really, really well. So I'm so excited about that. Now I have all those, I put them in other uh, programming that I use, I put them sometimes in this podcast and you know, this, this is amazing. So the last part of this is, tomorrow I'll be doing a music show in Washington. I've never done music stuff in my life, always wanted to. So I have my own DAO of music show on WCRW 1190 in Washington DC in Leesburg, Virginia. And then an hour and a half later, two hours later, Jennifer Weigel and I do our show together, John and Jen, we've always wanted to do that. And we do that in Washington as well. So this thing keeps evolving and I just keep saying yes and showing up. Sometimes I wonder why, but then people respond and say, this really helped me or I understood something or thank you so much, or you know, it helped me out at a time that was difficult or I laughed a little bit or that interview was incredible. Those type of things keep me going. So the first thing I want to do is drop the needle on the very first Earth Matters. This is one that Bill Curtis walked off the street, read in the studio, and then John Keith put the production around. So I'm going to do that first, and then we're going to roll right into the uh, the montage of interviews. As I said, with Christopher Reeve, Gene Chatsky, Earl Hamner, Carol Channing, Dick Shapp, and Jerry Kramer, and Captain Jerry Coffee. Enjoy. Did you know that the water running from your
1: tap is the same water that dinosaurs waded in millions of years ago? Fact is that we never get new water. That water needs to go through an incredible ancient system just to make it back to a place where it can be used again. It makes its way through the surface then to the aquifers that connect with more streams, ponds, and creeks than you can count. All that water moves into the rivers and then out into the oceans and seas, where it is then pulled up into the atmosphere, where it eventually becomes rain, and from there to the lakes, where the cycle starts all over again. Earth is a biosphere, and all the life that is contained within it depends on water to survive. Water is not just for our use. It's also for the lifeblood of the planet. I'm Bill Curtis
0: with Earth Matters. Power Talk Radio on News Talk 600 WCHT. Anyone that's ever gone to the movies in the last 20 years, of course, would recognize the Christopher Reeve's name. He has become Superman and a superhero to millions of people all over the world. And I think his greatest endeavors in the, and, and really his ability to show people how to really high flyer has come from the conduction of his life after, of course, the accident that uh, paralyzed Chris. And uh, he is doing something about it. Instead of going into a reclusive position on this, He has gone out and put his name all over the place because he's starting this Christopher and Dana Reeve New Paralysis Resource Center. Millions of Americans impacted by paralysis will be able to gain vital new resources because of the work that they are doing. And, of course, he shot a movie uh, back in 79 on Mackinac Island. We're glad to have him joining us this afternoon from his home. Welcome, Chris. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks very much. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. The whole world knew, of course, what happened a few years back when when you had the accident. And my first thought, I'm thinking, you know, you've done thousands of shows since then, and, and I'm, I'm sure you asked the same questions over and over again. So I thought I would reverse it. Is there anything that you've wanted to say that no one's asked you about the how your life has changed and the work that you do in the world now?
2: Uh, that's a really nice offer. I wish I had something prepared for that. Um, <laughs> but I guess, I guess the, the one thing that I get a little tired of is, uh, you know, people say, that well, you played Superman in the movie, but now you're Superman in real life. And I feel that that, uh, that kind of, you know, is an easy catchphrase, and it's mental, but it really overlooks the heroic efforts of, uh, of people who don't have the kind of advantages that I have. Uh, there are people in nursing homes who shouldn't be there. There are people uh, who don't even get rain, don't get any exercise, uh... They were closed in and I mean they're the ones
0: who are really irrelevant. Hmm. What do you think people see in your struggle that they connect with so much? What is it about the fortitude or maybe the integrity that you hold that so many people that even are not paralyzed or connect with? Is is, is there something that comes to mind?
2: Well, I think at first there was shock, you know, that uh you know, because I I played uh, Superman in four movies and uh you know, was well well known around the world for that. Uh And of course, supposedly the only thing that can get him is kryptonite. But uh, (laughs) you know, to um, you know, break my neck uh, over a jump. uh, Just I think, brought home the fact that even someone that you know plays a a superhero is a mere mortal, and uh, it reminds us all of our mortality or our fragility. Mm -hmm. And yet, we have within us resources and powers that we. that we really don't know much about until we're tested. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's sort of the, the journey that, that I've been on. And, uh, you know, if you'd asked me, oh, maybe in my 20s or something, uh, said, okay, when you're 42, you're going to break your neck and be paralyzed. Uh, what are you going to do? I'd say, oh, shoot me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then you realize you're actually in that situation. And But there are people around, my wife, my children, my friends, uh you know, that the body may not work as well as it did, but, uh, you know, the, the, the heart, you know, the brain, the mind are, uh, mm-hmm. are still intact. They work without, uh, you know, without the body, and that's actually the most important part of you.
0: If you were, you said about looking back or looking ahead, if you had that opportunity, as you look back now in the last few years, what has changed most about you that probably wouldn't have changed had this not happened?
2: Um that i don't sweat the small stuff anymore, you know I think that uh a lot of we really work ourselves up into a frenzy about uh a lot of very very trivial stuff. I know I used to uh you know become something of a perfectionist you know, and so i'd uh you know get overwrought about little details in life or uh things that were supposed to happen that didn't happen on time or whatever and uh I look at that and go, relax. I'll take a chill pill. You know, because it's really, and the other thing is to tell the truth, I realize that a lot of times we don't always really say what we mean. Uh, you know, we, we, we want to make nice. It's kind of uh, the, the 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 grease that makes the world go around. Uh, but I guess once once you've nearly kicked the bucket and you've ended up uh, in a life-changing situation, I think it's very important uh, I find that I just, I'm I'm willing to say exactly, you know, exactly what I feel, and I think that that's a right, I think it's a responsibility and a privilege we all have to, uh, you know, actually say what we really think, and people just have to, uh, people have to deal with it.
3: <laughs> Welcome to Life Matters with John St. Augustine.
0: We're going to talk with newsmakers and rule breakers and ground shakers and risk takers and see if we can't just find out really what's going on in the world in conversation that's not just about victory or who's right but actual progress if you're looking for a little inspiration instead of desperation you found it
3: this is life matters
0: back at it on life matters on cbs you're in the right place at the right time for the right reasons with the right guy That I can guarantee you, because what I talk about on this show every week is what I've been talking about on the radio since 19, none of your damn business what year I started. But let me tell you this. So over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with some incredible human beings that I learned a lot from. And if you were uh, a fan of the Oprah radio um, effort from 06 to 10, I was part of that. I actually don't mind saying that I, I brought the original idea for the concept in August of 2004 to Harpo and sat down with a a fellow named Tim Bennett and kind of laid it out and he said, this is great, but we don't know anything about radio. I said, I do. Had to wait two more years for that to happen. And in the first meeting in, I believe it was New York City, they were pairing up the producers, which I was hired to produce, had to kind of put my microphone away for a little while. I was the only person on board that had a lot of talk radio experience and you're doing a talk channel, we might want to do that. So we're in New York City, and um, we were getting paired up with who we were going to work with. And I remember sitting down with, with Mehmet Oz and, you know, I thought, God, he kind of, you know, if he does, if his hair's not cut right, he's got Spock ears. <laughs> and uh, be, besides being one of the most brilliant people on the planet, I kind of like this guy. We both played football. We kind of, you know, you need someone to go head to head with. and And real early on, we had a healthy respect for each other. Obviously, I'm not going to do heart surgery anytime soon. And Oz needed help getting behind the microphone. So that was a really good synergistic fit. Bob Green, of course, Oprah's trainer, kind of cut from the same cloth. My, uh, My minor is in kinesiology and Bob and I got a big kick out of doing that. And he was doing an hour a week. But the person that I connected with the most, the person who quite frankly became closest to because we spent so much time together and the person I had the most respect for was Jean Chatsky? She had done my show because she's a Michigander even before I was on Oprah Radio and did all that. And when we met in New York, it was kind of like, oh, there's my younger um, sister, Jean Chatsky." And uh, ever since then, we've been great pals and and did some amazing work together. And I'm not uh, shy saying that it was the first show on the Oprah Radio channel that won a uh, a esteemed award. And it was the first show that went on. It was a Gracie Award and the first show that ever went live. That's a testament to Jean Chaskey, who she is, what she does, and what she knows. You can't uh, tell, and I'm a little thrilled to have her back on, and she joins me from New York. Jeannie, it is so good to have you back in my ear.
4: Ah, uh, it is. I, I'm thrilled to be here, and that was uh, that was a very nice walk down memory lane.
0: I know. I mean, you can't spend that much time together, and the cool thing about it is. You know, you did the show a lot of times from home, which would mean I could I could see you eventually. Did we have a little camera or something at the we house? We did. We yeah. had a
4: little. We had a little camera. We had an <laughs> ISDN line running out of my house. Yeah. We also had the doorbell ringing and the dog barking <laughs> in the background on occasion, and and I hope that doesn't happen today, but it, you never know. It might. Um, yeah. But I, I I should tell your listeners that you were an incredible teacher. I I, I learned so much about how to, how to be on the radio from, from working with you. And, and, uh, and I still meet people who say, I miss you, but I really miss John St. Lawrence.
0: Oh, really? Yep. Oh, Jeannie, that's so great. You know, one of the things I used to get is hate mail people thinking I was picking on you. Do you remember this?
4: Well, you you probably were picking on
0: me. <laughs> but there was a good thing. I'm like, but it's a good picking on. But, yeah, I wanted to keep things moving and keep it honest. And and you, you put up with a lot of that. And, and we had some great time also. Where, where was it taped at the uh, the Circle there in New York?
4: At Columbus Circle. Columbus Circle. At the circle. Jazz at Lincoln Center mm-hmm. Studios. Gail, Gail would finish her show, and she'd leave, and we'd come in, and we'd mm-hmm. start taping. It was, it was awesome. It was a really, really wonderful experience.
5: It's
1: time to power up with the most powerful hours on radio today. News Talk 600 WCHT presents Power Talk Radio. And now, here's the new voice of America, John St.
0: Augustine. Hey, welcome to Power Talk Radio. We are delighted, as always, to have you on board as we crank it up one more time right here on News Talk 600 WCHT, and uh, glad to have you on board. Got a great lineup of uh, guests, as we always do on this show. Taking a little walk on the uh, side of common sense in the first hour with, I think, not only one of the most recognizable voices you've ever heard on television and on radio, but uh, to me, a, a man who... When I just think about his name and the work that he does and what he stands for, makes me sleep a little bit better at night. That, of course, is uh, Earl Hamner, who is the creator of the Waltons. And uh, there's a sign. Earl, see, Earl's got his priorities in order. That's why I like him. Earl's got a sign on the door of his office that says, work is for people who don't know how to fish. Got to love a guy like that. He's also got a book out that we talk about when he comes on the show with me. It's called The Avocado Drive Zoo. And it's a, a great waltz, really, through uh, some of the creatures, great and small, that Earl and Jane have had in their life uh, over their lifetime together. And it's a really neat book, thinking about how life used to be, and I think about the simple things in life. And uh, what a great, great guy he is. He was uh, uh, the guy, of course, that created the Waltons. It's one of the most beloved family series of all time. It still runs on television all uh, constantly, and uh, even my kids these days, at thirteen and ten, still sit down and watch uh, John Boy and and all the whole crew go through their ups and downs, and he really was uh, able to find out how to turn stories from his own life into the cherished cast of characters that we all grew up with that inhabited Walton's Mountain, not to mention the fact that his book, The Avocado Drive Zoo, uh, really talks about the critters in his life, and he's got a special kinship, as his wife Jane does with the critters in our country, and now he has this humorous and very heartwarming book that's out, and uh, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to bring a good friend on the show, Earl Hamner. How you doing, Earl?
1: Hi. I, I was just thinking what a topsy-turvy world we live yeah. in. You probably have snow, and I'm planting lettuce. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're planting lettuce.
1: Well, I'm a gardener, and yeah. in Hollywood, or at least in Los Angeles, you can, uh, you can uh, garden year-round, mm-hmm. which is one of the best things about living here. And
0: you're absolutely right. We have snow in the air today.
1: Do you really? Yeah, some flurries. That's exciting. It
0: is exciting. You know, I mentioned to you, I was in California about a month ago, and I, the young lady that was driving me around for a couple of days, I said, how do you do Christmas? And she said, warmly. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's a little different out there.
1: <laughs> it doesn't feel like Christmas, uh, really. And, uh, you, so you have to celebrate in, in the interior, spiritually, Absolutely. rather Absolutely. than physically. You sure can't go. You know, we, we live way up in the hills. Mm-hmm. And, I don't think it's probably ever snowed here. Wow. but visitors from out of town will say, "What do you do when it snows? Don't you slide <laughs> off?
0: <laughs> you know, I've never asked you because your voice is so familiar to millions of people. What is it like to know all these years later that you're out in your garden l- doing the lettuce, and somewhere in the world, your voice is talking about Walton's mountain?
1: Well, I'm just have just a big enough ego that I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I That that excites me. I, as a matter of fact, once uh, my wife and I were in London, and we uh, bought uh, something in the store, and I gave them my Visa card, and the lady said, You're the man whose voice I hear.
6: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and somebody else
1: said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I that. That excites me. I, as a matter of fact, once uh, my wife and I were in London, and we uh, bought uh, something in the store, and I gave them my Visa card, and the lady said... You're the man whose voice I hear.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and somebody else
1: said that they fell in love with the sound of my voice. Well, so I, I hope it's had a beneficial effect. I was going to say,
0: and I hope they're still together, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. You know, I mentioned this before, and you know, uh, I've had so many people on this show, and I always I always have this, this kind of group off to my left here, that when I feel like something happens to us as a whole, I wonder what they're thinking about, and you're in that group. You know, what you've done, and, and, and the way the Waltons, and a lot of the other works that you've done, Spencer's Mountain, uh, and, and Charlotte's Web and all those other things um, that you've worked on talk about life in such simple terms. And of course, since uh, September 11th, uh, life has been anything but simple terms.
1: It, it really has, and and I, I suppose the world I have a feeling will never be the same again. And I think we probably have to to learn simple things all over again.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: I know um, I've been wondering what I am thankful for, and of course. I'm most thankful for my family, mm-hmm. and after that, for my country and my work and, and life itself. And, and those are very basic, uh, basic things.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think one thing that we could learn from what happened is that we had grown so excessive in, uh, in our way of life. we we'd gone too complacent. We, um, we thought we were such a powerful nation that nothing could ever harm us and we learned that, that, that we are vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So I hope we'll learn ways to keep strong in the future. I, I think it, if anything good comes from this, it can be to renew our, our faith in our, the values that have kept us going friend, since the time we first started, since the time this country was first. We won our independence from England. are so those are noble things that we've lived mm-hmm. by, and I think we need to relearn them.
0: You know the the Waltons, of course, takes place during the Depression years, and and your remembrance of them and and how they related to the times, and and here we are now uh, with difficult times, in a little obviously in, a, in many different ways. Uh, do you see the same things, uh, the 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 same spirit in people that you did back then, just even though it was different circumstances? Is it still run through us as Americans?
1: Well, I was impressed the other day that um, in New York, where I, I haven't been there. Uh, for many years, but where all of these tra- many of these tragedies were located, mm-hmm. that I understand that people have become much more considerate of each other, much more kind to each other, uh, that, that politeness has come back. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I was in, in New York, which is such a tough place. but, uh, but I, I see a little more courtesy, uh, a little more consideration,
6: mm-hmm.
1: uh, a little more um, va- value in each other. Uh, and, and and I see uh, a softer attitude even on on, um, on television. Well, I, uh, and that's, that's
0: and to me that's all good. Yeah, that's all absolutely. good. You know what? We're going to take a break. Earl Hamner joining me this afternoon, and uh, some of you might be interested to stick around because uh, when you find out what he was doing on Twilight Zone, you're not going to believe it. The same guy that did the Waltons, working on stuff that scared the you know what out of people sometimes. Quick time out. Take care of the people that take care of us. The Most Powerful Hours on Radio continue with just a little bit more on the other side of this break after this. We are back out at it, Power Talk Radio on News Talk 600 WCHD. Everybody's crowding into the studio around here because they all want to know what's going on with our, our guest this afternoon, Miss Carol Channing. Of course, a uh, storied history in, in Hollywood and on stage. And I'm looking at, uh, well, I'm going to bring her on so I can kind of share this with her a little bit. Carol, are you are
7: you know, Yes, I'm here. Do you know Minneapolis is my favorite town to, to perform
0: in? I've heard that.
7: You have?
0: Yeah, you just told me. I- I did. <laughs> when did I tell you? Just now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, Miss, yeah. now Carol, I have to tell you this. I'm looking at uh, the filmography of your career. Yeah. And it's quite. I see here, uh, paid in full. The first one, 1950. Oh. That?
7: Na-
0: 1950. It said paid in full. You played Mrs. Peters. Oh,
7: Robert. I mean, wait a minute. We are yeah, coming. Uh, Robert Cummings. Mm-hmm. Oh, for heaven's sake, Elizabeth Scott.
0: Elizabeth Scott.
7: They were using it for an audition. Mm-hmm. And I went up to the Paramount Theater, way up in the balcony, to see the audition. Al Wallace used his audition. So I went up there, my gosh, the whole place was laughing at me. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't know it was that funny. Yeah. <laughs> but it was.
0: And then if I go look at the uh, the TV guest appearances, that takes us back to 1956. An episode, uh, three men on a horse. Actually, it aired in 1957 with
7: Johnny Carson.
0: Johnny, Johnny Carson. Oh mm. yes. And many, many stints on the Carol Burnett Show, Hollywood Squares. Of course, the Love Boat, the Muppet Show. Boy, you've been busy.
7: Oh, I had a good time with Carol Burnett.
0: Yeah. Now, they, I heard. I don't know if this. I just heard this the other day. They're they're doing something for the troops or something. Carol Burnett's troop with Harvey Corman and all that.
7: Isn't that great? That
0: is great. That is oh, great.
7: Boy, that was a good show, wasn't it? Success? I don't know it. Yeah? I don't know anybody that does. Really? You know what I mean? I mean, what would mean the secret to my success? seems to me I'm always bungling things up.
0: <laughs> Come on.
7: Really? I mean, and, and then finally we get it, and we're just grateful we got it straight, straight, got it straightened out. Uh, let me see. I just wish I knew. I, all I know is we're all struggling to make everything, whatever project we're on, work. Mm-hmm. And that's the
0: trick. Well, I mean, America has really embraced you. And Even if you look at just Hello, Dolly, they, they they see you as that. Is it the singing? Is it the dancing? Is it your enthusiasm? What do you think that draws people into to who you are?
7: I got a good sh- They're very good shows, too. Yeah. I mean, nobody can be, be good in a show that isn't written well. Mm-hmm. It's got to be written beautifully, and we had Thornton Wilder for the original, I mean, the great American writer Thornton Wilder, and we had had Gower Champion, and Jerry Herman wrote the music and lyrics, my gosh, Mm -hmm. oh no, no, it's got to be a good show to begin with.
0: So all the pieces make the puzzle.
7: Although with Barbara Streisand, it wasn't a barrel of laughs. laughs. I thought. Yeah, I thought
0: <laughs> now remember, you're not on that horse anymore, Carol. I know. Oh, okay.
7: Naturally, I still have, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
7: have Every, grudges.
0: Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, Wait,
7: we're, <clears throat> I roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least Minneapolis makes you feel that way.
0: Absolutely. Why is Minneapolis so so near and dear to your heart?
7: Will you please tell me why this is the best doggone... Way back, you had a Lyceum Theater, mm-hmm. and we could hear the audience. Mm-hmm. They were marvelous. Old. And then after that, we played the Orpheum there. Mm-hmm. And it's the best doggone theater. It's an old vaudeville house, as you know.
0: Now, Carol, were... I was telling you beforehand about people that I have known, my parents being particular here, that had seen you in Hello Dolly and talked about how one person, how amazing it is to have talent to be able to hold an audience and impact an audience, and you say, you know, you really never heard that back, but you must have tons of letters and, and, and thanks from people for, for doing the things that you do.
7: Yes, yes, and and I really appreciated them, but it's funny, I always wanted at the end of each show to walk down the aisle and say, now, which part did you like the best? Did you like the second act better than the first? Mm-hmm. And I never get to do that.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, Carol Channing is joining me this afternoon on Power Talk Radio, and boy, she has just come so far and done so many different things. Now, I know you don't think that, Carol, but the people on this side of the stage, we think that. She's joining me this afternoon. We'll come back and talk more about uh, some of the, the adventures that she's been in. It's not been all, you know, uh, beer and Skittles here. Sometimes there's some tumbles people take, not just physically, but also in careers and things like that. And she's always bounce back. You have played the role in over 5,000 performances in Hello, Dolly. Um, what is I your- promised you a Brinner,
7: John, that I would not, if I went over 5,000, I would not say so. Because he played the king and I 5,000 times. And he said, look, no matter how many performances you, you, you do, don't go over 5,000. I promised him I wouldn't. Carol? but just quietly between us. I don't want him to turn over in the gray.
0: Yeah, right.
7: <laughs> <laughs> we went a little over that.
0: Well, that's okay. <laughs> when you think about the, the long career you've had and the thousands, if not millions of people that are your fans all over the world, how would you like to be remembered? Is, is that important to you? And how how would you like to be remembered?
7: Well, you know what? I was talking to Julie Andrews about that to drop a name. And and. I said, do you feel in a long-run show that you're a little Florence Nightingale up there? And she said, yes, but I wouldn't tell another actor. <laughs> I mean, she said, but she, she wouldn't tell anyone but another actor. But she feels the same way. And I, I realized... My goal was always to lift people's lives from the fourth grade on to lift their lives, and it's the most wonderful feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the
7: real reason that I'm in the business I'm in, and I don't want to get out of it. Well,
0: I am glad you sound as good as you do, and I'm I'm, I'm glad that you're all healed up and that you have a book coming out because it'll be like see, your fourth you know, career now.
7: See, once people know you're 80 years old, they 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 think it's amazing that you're upright. <laughs> You know, they think it's just amazing that you can walk out and get the bail. Yeah.
6: <laughs>
7: <laughs> so anyway, I'm gonna yes, I'm gonna do another show. Doggone it!
0: Yeah, that's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear.
7: And it'll have lots of dancing in it and singing.
0: Now listen, when when the book comes out in September, will you come back and do the show with me?
7: Oh, well, could, would I ever? Where? Where? What city are you in? Well, we'll
0: take care of all the particulars. Don't worry about that.
7: No, I want to know if you're in Minneapolis.
0: No, well, they get to hear it though. We don't get to live there.
7: Oh, you don't?
0: No, I've been there quite a few times, but we don't get to live there. Oh, gee. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that.
7: Well, I'll meet you in Minneapolis anyway.
0: Absolutely. I know a nice deli there. Oh, do you? Yes, I do. Okay. So it's a date. It's a date. It is a date. Oh, John, I love talking to you. Carol, you are a gem. And we're back. Power Talk Radio, News Talk, six hundred WCHT. Dick Schaap is the author of more than thirty books uh, that cover a wide range of the human spectrum and how life is, especially in the sports world. He shadowed box with Muhammad Ali, he's golfed with Bill Clinton, and traded punchlines with Billy Crystal and Lenny Bruce. And fans have loved him for over fifty years. And now we're going to be talking about this latest effort. It's called "Dick Schaap Flashing Before My Eyes." And it is written by Dick Schaap, as told to Dick Schaap, which I expected no less. And he joins us this afternoon in the middle of Manhattan. How are you doing, Dick? I'm doing just fine, but I, I think I should tell you that
8: that part that you read is, is a real tribute to, to press agent Triggs. That's that part about shadow boxing with Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I mean, I'm crazy, but I'm not that crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If he oh, was boxing, with him, he would have killed me.
0: Yeah, I think that would Just a shadow would have done it, huh?
8: Yeah, I mean, the rest yeah. of the stuff is okay, but that shadow boxing with Ali, oh, he's
0: going <laughs> to. You know, I was going through there, and I can't believe that there's. A, is there anybody that you don't know or haven't played golf with or had dinner with? <laughs> not many, huh? Right? You know, Jerry Kramer uh, is a good buddy of mine, and we were uh, talking just a week or so ago. And I, when I was a kid growing up, of course, you co-authored Instant Replay and Distant Replay with him. And those books are still very, very popular. Uh, that whole time you spent in the Green Bay era and those incredible athletes is still things we can learn about today.
8: Oh, it is. You know, that, that, that's my from Green Bay, and that's one of my books the most popular. I've written six books about the Packers, four of them with Jerry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm thinking very seriously of writing my next book uh, about the same person I wrote my first book about, uh, which was
0: Paul learning. You know he he was up here with us about two or three years ago, and he has lost none of the fire that got him where he's at. Well none of the weight. Well, exactly. <laughs> I'll let you say that. <laughs> yeah, well ball Paul, very large, but you know, it's just astounding to me uh, all these years that you've done this. Fifty years of headlines, deadlines, and punchlines. How did you break into the business? What was what was the big passion and driving force for you?
8: Well, I think the, the big thing right at the beginning was that I couldn't play as well as I wanted to. If I had been able to hit the curveball or the fastball, or the change of pace for that matter, mm-hmm. you know, I, I probably would have spent a lot more time on, on the ball field. I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time in the schoolyard and mm-hmm. on the field, but I was never as good as, uh, as, as I would have liked to have been. So when I had the opportunity at, at the age of 14 to start writing for a weekly newspaper, uh, that was great. When I was 15, I started working on a daily newspaper. Yeah. Four nights a week, four hours a night, $1 an hour. Wow. And my boss was Jimmy Breslin and went on to win the Pulitzer Prize.
0: Absolutely. You know, I know we don't have a whole lot of time today, but it, could we take a phone call? That'd be all right? Oh, sure. Great. Uh, okay. Hello?
8: Yes. Uh, I was wanting to know if he was uh, overpaid at that $1 an hour. well i'll tell you what before the one dollar an hour when i was writing for the weekly paper i think i got five dollars a column and i know i was overpaid that way
3: (laughs) i'll see you in uh, los angeles monday night mr shop yes
8: right that is (laughs) you know who that is (laughs) yes do you know who it is well sure i know who it is do you know who it is yes i do it's mr kramer it's mr kramer how you doing jerry I'm doing good, Johnny. How are you guys doing? Well, we're doing great. We're doing
0: great. We uh, we hauled Dick out of the middle of Manhattan, stuck a cell phone in his ear. We're doing the show. And I said, you know, we got to get Kramer on because you guys are really cut from the same cloth. The books that you put together, instant replay and distant replay, have done so well. And it's, it's become part of the American landscape.
8: How come you guys keep... Oh, no, I can't. What's that, what's that, Dick? How do you reach Jerry so easily in a photo? It takes me
0: three days. <laughs> you know what that's called? That's called rank has its privileges.
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, it's been a sensational experience, John, to have been associated with Dick and been a part of his uh, collection of authors and, and, and friends, and I, uh, we've had a great relationship for uh, almost 40 years now, mm. he's been a consistent, uh, decent, wonderful human being, Loves the new book, and uh, enjoy being around him, enjoy working with him.
8: Hey, Jerry, Jerry, were you at the Derby? Say that again, Dick. Was Jerry at the the Kentucky Derby? Jerry, did you hear that? No, he wasn't. Not this year. Okay. I I, I spent the morning today with Art Modell, because he wants to write a book. Uh Uh-huh. I got to tell you, he sent a Falcon jet to pick me up. It was a limousine waiting on the runway the Falcon jet to take me home. You never treated me that well. <laughs> I got news for you. I never will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. I, 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 God, I mean, you, you know, I was lucky if you if you sent Horning to pick me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was the unlucky part, with yeah. Horning. Nobody <laughs> could hang out with that
3: guy.
0: Dick, you all were right. asking how we get a hold of Jerry. We just fi- we call all the golf courses anywhere in the country, and we eventually find them.
8: That's that or later, he's, yeah. his, he's giving a
0: speech.
8: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to see you Monday.
0: That's
3: great. Yeah.
8: Hey, J.K., for, we'll be together.
3: J.K., thanks for checking in, pal. Thank you, Johnny. Stay well, Dick, and I'll see you Monday. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. That's
0: funny. I've been asked many, many times over the years, with all the years that you've been in radio and all the people you've talked to, who's kind of like the most, who's the best guest you ever had, or the greatest guest, whatever. And they all fall in different categories, but if there was the most impactful uh, guest, it's Jerry Coffee. You just don't go from being a seven year plus prisoner of war in the Hanoi Hilton to someone who writes a book about forgiveness, which always puts any slight or injustice that I may or may not imagine in perspective. If this man can go through what he went through and forgive his captors, who am I to be pissed off and be unforgiving in the things in my life? And so I think that in many ways, Jerry's ability to forgive created to his longevity. I think it, it added to it. Uh, and so while I was very, very, very sad to hear the news that Jerry has passed, I was so very glad to get to know him and to have the conversations that we had over the years. So this is one from five years ago. I was with CBS at the time. Uh, they had just come out with their Play.it It podcast platform so you're going to hear some of the music in that and you'll hear our conversation and as I recall we had a a technical problem in the studio and uh, we had to do the whole show over I mean the whole show it was like 30 minutes and Jerry at the time was on vacation he lived in Hawaii so he's kind of lived where people go on vacation made his family there he was on the beach he came back from the beach and did the show a second time serious respect for him so uh, this is from My CBS podcast, Life Matters, and this is my conversation with Jerry Coffey. And by the way, you should go find a copy of Beyond Survival from Captain Jerry Coffey. You can read all the great books about how to do things and the theory of doing things. The man lived it. Glad to have you back. John St. Augustine, actually delighted to be with you one more time and thrilled, really, for this show. Again, I say this every week. I'm thrilled with all the people I get a chance to spend time with. But over the years, doing media for two decades now, basically, I'm asked every now and again of all the people that you spend time with and talked with and all the rest of that stuff, you know, who, who really is at the top of the list when it comes to the time, the energy, and the effort of the message that they put out? Really hard to determine that sometimes as I think about the great voices and the great messages and the great people that I've been so very fortunate to spend time with, but I have to really kind of set it up at the top of the list is a fellow named Captain Jerry Coffey, who is uh, the author of a book called Beyond Survival, Building on the Hard Times, a POW's inspiring story, one of the longest held prisoners of war in Vietnam. When I read this book many years ago, it just stayed with me. I think the first time that I learned about Jerry Coffey was a little cassette tape that Tony Robbins did, an interview with him. I heard it in my car many, many years ago. And uh, it had gone on since then, so when I got in radio in the in the middle to late 90s, I, I really wanted to have this conversation. We had some amazing, amazing uh, connections over the years, and now that I've come back to CBS, where I started, actually, uh, it was without any hesitation that I got a hold of Jerry late last year. We had a great conversation, and we were able to pull it off today, and he joins me. Uh, he's suffering, actually, in Hawaii on the beach. So, Jerry, thanks very much for being patient. <laughs>
5: Oh, I'm going to get the sand out of my toes here. So yeah. <laughs> focus more hey, listen, it's good to be back in touch with you, my friend. And I'm looking forward to a working relationship here uh, now and, and in the future. Um, I understand uh, that uh, we've got some more time. We have to do a little more mm-hmm. um, over again. That's yep. no problem. I've got lots of time and uh, ready to go here. Well, I want to be... Uh, I. Think I, I I mentioned that I'm at the beach park at Kailua Beach on the windward side of uh, Oahu. We live on the leeward side, and the windward side is the more tropical and and damper side. And uh, Kailua Beach is uh, consistently rates as number one, two, or three by tourists and beach experts all over the world. And uh, it's just a beautiful beach, and I've got my family down here. And uh, not going to let that let a radio interview uh, interfere with that beach
0: time. <laughs> well, uh, uh, says we can't do it all. That's right. I mean, technology allows for just about everything. And, and, and in contrast to that, I'm on the tenth floor of the Prudential Building, overlooking a very soggy, cold, and wet uh, lakefront in Chicago, and it's it almost looks like London outside. So you got what you got. I got what <laughs> I got. <laughs> and in the interest of full disclosure, I, I I think it's important. This is this is part of I think the lesson of what you brought to the table, and always do. This is a restart. Uh, we had a serious technical snafu in the middle of 17 minutes in and the computer shut down, locked up. I could do nothing. And so the engineer had to come in and figure it out and took him time to get all that stuff. I called you a couple times and it kind of reminded me of the lesson that, that maybe we should use as a leap off point. You know, there are things that are simply out of our control and there's nothing I can do. about Amen. it. So, right. So I, I spend a little time reading your book a little bit more and, and uh, just kind of biding time and checking in on you. And I think that's a that's a prevalent message for today because in the in the 21st century Jerry we, we want to control everything and that's just not possible
5: it certainly is and we just have to prepare ourselves to to be flexible uh, and uh, and to roll with the punches when when necessary uh, but also to turn the circumstances in our favor when we can and that's what I was able to do to a great extent mm-hmm. um, based upon an my prayers there in Vietnam was to um, keep track of the lessons, the life lessons that I learned uh, well enough to be able to pass them on after I came home. So, it wouldn't just be a, a big void in my life, of, you know, with, with no no progress, uh, but I could come home and capitalize on the
0: experience. I think that message right there, and, and I watched some of your videos to kind of catch up to speed to what you've been up to the last four decades, uh, making this th- thing work, is I was so impressed. I'm not I'm impressed anyway, everything that you talk about, but... In particular, you were giving a a talk and you said, you know, uh, even though my experience was Vietnam and my experience was being shot down and my experience was being a prisoner of war, all of us have our own experiences that we're supposed to extract the lessons from. And one of the most challenging thing I think it is for people is to have their perspective shift happen and get out of the woe is me and, and the kind of like, you know, look what I can do kind of thing. And so you were in... And I tell people this all the time, you know, it's, it's very difficult for me to get upset with traffic when I think about you, because what you went through, <laughs> well, I mean, when you really think about it, it's like, really, my biggest right. thing today is I had mean, to wait in line for five minutes?
5: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, at one time or another, we are all POWs, and I call up prisoners of woe. And uh, we need to make those times, uh, uh, moments of learning and uh, overcoming adversity and patience and um, the way to find the bright side of, of, of almost any experience, and you know, some of my family call me Pollyanna, and that may be true in the in the in the most pure sense, but doggone it, uh, I, I think you know we may we make or break our own feelings, and we decide uh, what to do with them. My fellow speaker, W. Mitchell, a guy that's sure paraplegic, he. He, and I know you know his story, too. You know, he's, the title of his book is, is um, it isn't what what happens to you, it's what you do about it.
6: Yeah.
0: So there's a little bit of a retrospective. I, I sure enjoy listening, and I got hundreds of other tapes. If you ever want to borrow me, let me know. I got cassette tapes. I don't have any 8-track-type um, cart tapes anymore. Uh, I've tried to digitalize a lot of this stuff, and there are days, listen, I think, what am I going to do with this stuff? I just throw it out. And then I find a gem sitting in there somewhere, a conversation with sweet Carol Channing or Earl Hamner, Christopher Reeve, and the list goes on and on and on and on. At one point, the calculation was I had over 35,000 radio shows. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, I had somebody, I paid him basically to do my inventory. And it was over 35,000 radio shows with over 15,000 different guests. And a lot of those were some solo shows and things like that. So I guess it's a little bit of a treasure trove uh, it, it, did you hear the voice thing? I sound like I'm 15. I, I don't know what's happened. I don't even, I should smoke like packs of cigarettes to get this voice and I don't. So uh, it just, um, it's humbling is what it is. You know, in light of all that goes on in the news today with uh, pseudo talk hosts using microphones to whip people into a frenzy to sell them shit and lie on the air is, is so far beyond my comprehension. Uh, I, I don't know what to do except keep doing what I'm doing. So for me, this is the way that I keep my sanity a little bit. This is the way uh, I pay my dues for taking up the space I take up on the planet. And most importantly, this is the way that I honor that thought that came into my head, that clear voice that said, go on the radio. Seriously, I've never heard stop. And there's been a lot of speed bumps. There's been times in our business, we call it on the beach. If you're on the beach means you're not working. There's been a few of those. And somehow I get pulled back in or something happens over here. And in the meantime, you know, I, I get to sell books and do talks and so much that I am not qualified for on paper, but it seems to work out. So thanks so much for spending time with me. And, and I got to say, for those people who've been subscribers of this podcast, thank you so much. It means the world to me. Not just the money that you put, obviously. I mean, that's, it's kind of like the reciprocation for the energy and effort we all put in here. But there are some of you listening that have been with me since day one, and you know who you are. And I just... I'm humbled by it. It reminds me of so many of the times that I I've, I've did radio shows and I'd walk out of my office and there'd be people standing there wanting to talk to me. And I thought, I just spoke for three hours. What could you possibly want? And you realize at that point that how much we want to be filled up by something that matters. So doing these shows to me matter. Uh, I don't know what'll come back around in the future in radio. I'm just supposed to keep showing up and I will. I've faltered many times, but I've never, ever wavered. I started this show with BTO, and I'm going to end with that. And the reason was, is for the first five years of my radio career, I opened the show with Taking Care of Business. I realized it was a hook to get my blood pumping at 9 o'clock in the morning when I had never done this in my life. I needed leverage on myself. And that five years, I played that song. And I also realized something else as well. In my own way, shape, or form, that's what I showed up to do. Take care of business. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.